This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by G Forge and Tool. Forged from proprietary steel alloy, GE's tools are made to withstand the rigorous everyday work of professional farriers. GE professionals make their tools to ensure precision consistency day after day. Learn more at geforge.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. I've never met a farrier who doesn't like to talk about horseshoeing. But among these, some really stand out. And for me, Doyle Blagg is near that top of that list. I've always enjoyed talking to Doyle about his career in horseshoeing, which has spanned more than 60 years, and he's built a reputation for working with a lot of different horses. In this episode, he'll talk about the different types of horses he worked with, and he'll also share some advice on how he prepared for life after horseshoeing. Well, Doyle, tell us about how you got into horses and horseshoeing. Well, it was uh, started way back with my grandfather. He, he, my grandfather was a farrier and uh, and a good one. He had a lot of horses that he uh, had. They they worked horses all the time back then, and that's the only way they had of getting anything done was either doing it with a, a horseback or working them, you know. And and he had uh, a lot of horses that he leased out to the state of Texas and they used his horses building the roads and uh, he had some really nice horses too but they were good work horses you know and uh, they'd give you a dollar and a half a day for a team you furnish the team and if you'd also furnish a teamster a driver for that team they'd give you another 50 cents well it doesn't sound like much money, but if you worked all day, you could make a dollar. But if you had something you could do where you could make two dollars, well, that was that was getting it together, you know. And so that's anyway. That's how he got into it, and and then my, of course my dad came right up in that when he was a kid, and uh, my dad had one brother, and uh, so they just came right up in that same. Uh, work frame and and uh, using the horses and they had some mules too but you couldn't work a horse and a mule you could only work two horses or two mules then when uh, my brother and I got old enough well my dad started teaching us the trade and back then we you know they lived so far out in the country in order to keep shoes on those horses, they had to learn how to do it themselves. Well, if you've got a hundred horses and mules that you work every day, that's quite a job if you can just keep shoes on them. And uh, if you're doing it yourself, that's even a bigger job. But you you end up having to train your horses to let let you pick the feet up and to stand for you to shoe them and and I know you know a lot about what involved in in that type of work but anyhow that's where we got started my grandfather and my dad and me and my brother we all learned to 
work in that same respect and uh it was good you know i had some good training from people that had been doing it for years and they taught me what what it takes when you when you work a horse every day on the road you have to learn how to drive nails in order to keep a shoe on because it uh, that's pretty trying on a shoe uh, you know you're uh, working on it every day pulling and stressing and straining and by golly if you don't put it on there properly it won't stay so it, it's a it's it's very it's really an asset to learn from someone who knows all those ins and outs of how to keep a shoe on a horse properly you know yeah that's interesting how that you know those working horses and how that will then translate to what you were doing years and years yep. later with show horses exactly and and you know it's it's basically the the fundamentals are the same regardless what you're doing with that horse he's still got to have shoes on and he's still got to have nails in them and they got to be put in there in a fashion where they'll hold that shoe on and uh, so it, it all works the same way. Just uh, maybe one horse has got a different job and another horse, but that's all right. Yeah. The, the job he has, it doesn't matter. It's, it's keeping a shoe on him is what matters and, and doing it the right way. And, and you learn a lot about uh, putting heavy shoes on horses that have to do hard work and light shoes on horses that do light work, especially like a racehorse. And uh, and I've shot a lot of racehorses. Shot the fastest horse in the world for 15 years, and uh, you know that the, those horses will teach you a lot on their own because their job requires a certain type of work. And if you can't do it that way, then you're going to have to learn how to do it. And if you can't, they'll get someone who can. And I don't blame them. They, you know, they're talking about a lot of money here, you know. So, yeah. We'll talk about those horses and some different work you did down the road. Going back to the, that time where, you know, you're based in Collinsville, which is, for the listeners, is north of Dallas-Fort Worth and right below yep. Oklahoma. Was that where you grew up and where your grandfather was based? Yes, sir. Uh, pretty, basically, we've been around this country here for, you know, my, my family for probably 100 years. But that's right. It was... Uh, and and several years ago, there was a there was not that much uh, civilization around. Uh, there, there was there was ranches and farms and and people living out here, but there there wasn't very many. You know, it was sparsely populated, and and uh, Texas is such a big place that unless you're right around one of the bigger cities your ability to to buy tools and materials and that sort of thing is pretty sparse you know mm-hmm. so they we had to learn and they had to learn how to make a lot of their own shoes and and take old farm machinery and melt it down and and uh, make shoes out of it and back during the, the war uh, World War two of course World War one was hideous but you couldn't buy horseshoes all the horseshoes were going to the to the military and so you had to make if you didn't have what you could use you had to make it 
And gosh dang, if you could find a shoe out in the road or one out in the on the farm somewhere, if you found a shoe that was lost, you'd bring it back and fix that dude where you could put it on a horse. Because it was a valuable thing years ago, finding a, a horseshoe that was usable. And sometimes you might have to build it up on the toe if it was wore out. You build it up with metal and or melt another piece of metal onto the top of it and make you another shoe. Yeah, you know, I, I was lucky enough a few years ago to come out and visit with you and spend the day with you and, and the people listening. Uh, you can go to this yeah. podcast episode page. I'll put a link to that article up there. But in your shop, you have that history of, of your grandfather's work, your your dad's work, yep. and uh, uh, you know that that sort of resilience. Uh, I think. Yep. How how did that translate to to not just being able like today we can buy any shoe, but I think yep. it has a lot to do with your ability to make a solution for a, a horse that's presenting a certain challenge for you. That's true. If you had to make a shoe, then. You, then you had to you had to learn to make a shoe that would fix the problem that that you were addressed with at hand. It, if if you needed a shoe that was thicker on one side or thinner on one side, you had to learn how to do all that, and you and you had to manipulate that iron to to get it to fit in that fashion where it would fix the problem. If you had a, a horse that had a medial lateral imbalance in his foot. And, and a lot of them do, and it's hereditary in a lot of them. And, and, you know, you'd have to build up one side and lower the other side. And if you know how to do that, a horse gets around perfectly. He's just as happy as he can be. He can do anything any other horse can do, and he's not dealing with a, a crippled foot or a foot that's high on one side, low on the other side. That gives him trouble. If you know how to do that properly, you can put it on one, and they're gone. They don't even have any idea that they got a problem, and they don't, as long as you know how to fix it, you know? Mm -hmm. Just one example, but there's a lot of them, you know? So, again, I'm lucky from having spent the day with you, and I know every horseshoer out there probably remembers their first paid job. And I always like yep. the story of how you, your first paid job as a horseshoer. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> My first paid job, okay. Uh, well, it was the first time, the one I'm thinking of is the first time that I charged for shoeing a horse. I, I had worked with my dad and my brother in my dad's shop for several years, and I, I was just a helper, and my brother was too. But when you got ready to pay your bill, you'd always pay the owner of the shop. And that's, I mean, that's what they did in my time. And anyway, I, this this guy came to our house and we'd been chewing his horses for years, my dad, Ed, my brother and I. And, and uh, we had a shop there in Denton, Texas. And so he came by the shop and uh, around noon and uh, he had a mare in the back of his pickup. Now, no, uh, they didn't have trailers. Nobody had a trailer back then. And you just jump your horse up in the back of the pickup, and that's the way you hauled them. And they put cattle racks, that's what they called them, cattle racks on the back of the pickup. And uh, you could put cows, calves, or sometimes when you're driving cattle, you put calves up in the back of the pickup. 
so they wouldn't slow everybody down and you drive the calves to wherever you're gonna drive the cattle and when you got there you put the cattle in the pasture and unloaded the calves out of the pickup and everybody's happy but anyway that son of a gun had this mare up in the back of the pickup and and uh, he asked me he said uh, is your my dad's name was Bill he said is Bill here and I said no sir he's working and uh, he said well I, I've got my mare here in the pickup and he said we've been driving and and you have to do the same thing with cattle. Any anytime you're moving cattle, if you're moving ten or five hundred and ten, doesn't make no difference. You have to drive them. You have to drive them down the road or drive them across country. How you just had to—that's the only way you had to get them where you wanted to go. No trucks or no trailers. He said, "I got a mare here that I've been driving cows with all day," and he said, "She's her feet are so sore she can't walk." And he said, I got a bunch of cattle I need to move this evening, and I and I can't use her this way because she ain't going to be able to make it. And he said, uh, when will your dad be home? And I said, uh, he, he'd be home about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Daggum, he said, I sure do need to get this matter done. I said, well, he, he'd be glad to do it for you, I know. And... Uh, and so he looked at me and he said, uh, well, you can shoot it for me, can't you? And I said, yes, sir, I sure can. But he hadn't asked me. <laughs> <laughs> but he'd seen me shoot a lot of horses, you know, had from my dad there in the shop. And the reason I hadn't said anything about shooting her, because I, I had a baseball game that afternoon and I was going <laughs> to go play ball. And uh, he said, you can shoot it for me, can't you? I said, yeah, I sure can. I said, if you'll unload her and take her out there at the shop, uh, I'll be right out there. So I went in the house and had my baseball uniform on, took my uniform off, changed clothes, went right out there and put four shoes in the forge. Because at that time, that's the only way we shod horse. My dad wouldn't let you put a cold shoe on a horse. You had to run every shoe through the fire. So that's what I did. I put four shoes in the fire, trimmed that mare's feet. Well, you didn't have to trim them. Her feet were slick as a mink. I mean, she had wore them off. Well, there wasn't nothing on the bottom of her foot. So there was nothing to it. I just put four shoes in the fire, shaped them up, nailed them on. And it didn't take me long. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, uh, what do I owe you? I said, a dollar and a half. And that's what we were charging at that time was a dollar and a half. Now that's what I made for shoeing. The first horse that I ever charged for was a dollar and a half. And I put all four of them through the fire and I mean they fit that mare just perfect. And he was thrilled to death because he, we put them shoes on her and she started walking just like a, you know, a horse that had nothing wrong with her. And she couldn't walk before I put them shoes on her because her feet were so tender she couldn't get around. But anyway, that, I'm sure that's a long story, but it, it's the truth, and that's what I did, and charged him a dollar and a half, and he was tickled, and I was too. <laughs> well, we all start somewhere, and I think, uh, you know, your dad yep. you know, your dad was out. Somebody had to take care of the horse. Yes, sir, exactly. And, I, and I'm glad we could do it, because that man... He was that gum sure in a bind. He 
he had a good mare and she was a good cow horse but by jacks she couldn't go without no shoes on you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she was in trouble yeah yeah and I, I think you know we all we've always talked about that a lot the the horsemanship that you have from especially your experience growing yeah. up and how important that is uh recognizing uh, the the needs of the horse and and also i think uh to the rider as well yes sir that's right it, it's very important and and of course i was fortunate having my dad to follow but he could recognize every problem that a horse had just by observing the horse and he you know he, he could see a little welled up tendon or a a little puffy place on the knee or the hock or he was just so observant and had so much experience with animals that it was easy for him to spot these little discrepancies that a horse might have well it's very important when you're trying to shoe one if you see these little places on them and you know what has caused that and and he knew a lot of remedies for problems back then because we didn't have veterinarians. There was no such thing as a veterinarian out in the country, unless we had one that was making rounds, you know, regular rounds, but that was unheard of, because it was just so hard to find someone to treat a horse for a, a, a lameness of some kind. And, but my dad could, and he was very good at it, and a lot of farriers were, because they, they had to treat so many lamenesses to get horses through with their problems that he knew what to use and how to use it and and I mean people brought him horses when I was a kid for every kind of a problem if they got one cut they'd bring it to my dad and he'd sew them up he'd take uh, little coats that needed to be castrated and I don't know how many thousands he's castrated over the years and but there's always got to be somebody in the countryside that everybody brings their horses to to get them treated because they didn't have veterinarians you know didn't have doctors back then out in the country and if you didn't live near a town it was very hard for you to get your animal cared for properly you know yeah, you know, like somebody had to do that. Yeah, and that you know that's a unique way of growing up, and you know the pressure put on people to shoe horses today, man. There's real pressure when it's a working yeah. horse. Uh, what advice do you have? I mean, it's it sounds like it's mostly observation, but I think a lot of yeah. especially young farriers now aren't growing up with uh, that kind of access to horses. Uh, what what were some other True. ways that helped you improve your horsemanship, or ways you've been able to to help your apprentices because I know you've had a lot of those over the years too. Yes, sir. And it seemed that uh, you you learn so much about that. And like you said, observation is your greatest asset. If you're if you're really good at and and my dad would tell me I'd be looking at a problem and he'd say now. You're looking, but you're not looking. Well, I thought, what in the hell is he talking about? Well, I, I figured out exactly what he was talking about over the years, but you, you, you look at a problem and you don't recognize it or you don't pick it up until you get the experience and you learn the little traits that you need to, to try to put together to, 
figure out exactly what a horse's problem is. Because if you see a horse walking up to you and he's limping, now why is he limping and how is he limping? There's, there's different ways of keeping weight off of a foot. Some horses will put their toe down, won't put their heel down. They'll put the heel down and won't put the toe down. What does that tell you about this lameness? Well, if he's putting his toe down, he doesn't want to put his heel down, and he may have a, a tendon problem or something in the back of that foot, or is it in the heel of the foot? So that's what you begin to pick up on immediately is the location of the lameness or the soreness. And the soreness and, and lameness go together, but they're not always the same. All these things, just like about by being around those animals that have a problem, you learn how to figure out what's causing the lameness, and you, then you figure out how to to maintain it or how to fix it, and how to get them over their lameness. And man, how important that is when you take a horse that, that you've got to get back on the road and you can figure out how to do that, you've made the horse happy and the owner happy and probably made you a good client for a long time. And, and if your ability to do that will keep you in business, you know? And uh, that, was, that was really important in our business because we were so far from the mainstream of people and doctors that uh, you know, if you could if you could do those things to keep an animal going, that was important to those people in the country because they they needed that horse to make a living with, or get from one place to the other, and uh, and if they couldn't move around, uh, then they're stuck. You're you're just uh, you're out of business, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the name of the game of what you know what your career evolved into with the show horses. It, it was a means for people to make money with their horses and and you're dealing with that same level exactly. of pressure there exactly you're not kidding and now more than ever because now these horses are worth so much money in the kentucky derby the other day they were the the horses won the derby won probably a million dollars well they've never been able to win a million dollars in that race because it didn't pay that much uh maybe a half a million or something but the All American fraternity out there in New Mexico, it paid five million last year. Well, that that's that's a lot. You know that that kind of money is not to be sneezed at. And if you got a horse that you're trying to run in a race like that, and he's got a sore foot, and now you've got a man that can fix that horse where he can participate, that man's worth a lot of money to you. You you're in business now. Your horse can just go right on. You know. And now it's it's gotten to be a, a really really specialized business where you can take a horse right now he can't get around and tomorrow he can run for a million. Hey, it's very important to get that dude where he can get around. So someone starting out, I think you know, there's always that issue where they see, you know, not just your area but those other concentrated areas where you have those. Yep those expensive performance horses doesn't really matter anymore which discipline yep. and they see the dollar signs but i don't think they recognize 
kind of the stress and and some of the things that the owners place on you. Can you talk about that a little bit about, you know, you're, you've talked a lot about the solution aspect and with a lame horse and that's important, but you know, that you're on call 24 seven when you're in that environment. That's right, exactly. Especially in the racehorse business, because if you, uh, I, sometimes I leave here and I'm gone for maybe two, three weeks, go to Rio Dosa, New Mexico, and be out there for the, let's say the All-American fraternity, which paid five million last year. Uh, it, when you're getting ready for a big race like that, they want you there, so in case that horse has a problem, they don't care what it is, whatever the problem is, you're there so you can help them with it, help the horse with his problem, and, and you're there every day. Well, when you're talking about a horse that's worth maybe four million, five million, he's running for three or four or five million, you know, that's a, that's a, quite an investment for a man and, he don't mind paying you to stay there and take care of a, if a problem arises, he don't mind paying you to be there and take care of it so that he can go on with his plans and his training. And it's very important that, that you get that horse to the track every day or every other day, because if you're preparing one to run a, let's say a quarter of a mile, I, he's got to have work every day and he's got to get those muscles toned and and it's got to be done every day and you're a big part of it if you're working on his feet because if his feet are hurting he ain't going anywhere so they can't run without you you know mm -hmm. how did you deal with that pressure when you're called into a situation uh especially with a lame horse maybe it's a horse you've never worked with before and you know how much money is staked did you ever feel any difference in that that kind of pressure applied to you? No, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people do, but thank goodness I had had enough experience with those lame horses that the the pressure wasn't on me. Uh, maybe on the owner or, or the people that own the horse or the trainer. That's where the pressure was, but it, I didn't feel the pressure. But yeah, they're depending on me to remedy this problem. Well, that's what I concentrated on, was remedying the problem, trying to figure out a remedy for this horse that would work. And you may have two or three horses that are, that are lame, but there's different problems that cause these lamenesses. And that's a big part of your job is to pinpoint exactly what that problem is and figure out how you're going to fix it and get it fixed, get it done, so this horse can get around. And, and so that, that takes up a lot of your time and it takes a lot of your energy and a lot of your efforts or go into re, uh, finding out exactly what the problem is and trying to manufacture a shoe or a, uh, a, some kind of a, a attachment that you put on his foot that will keep him from being sore and help him with his problem. And now everybody's happy. The horse is happy. But when he's happy, the owner's happy, and the trainer's happy, and the jockey's happy. But when you got a lame horse, that puts all those people out of business, and you too. 
So it's it's very important to learn all the ins and outs of the lameness and what it takes to fix that lameness. And when you learn that, then your advice is very, very valuable. There's people that will pay you a lot of money to oversee this job, to tell them how to fix their horse, because they got one got the same problem that horse had, but they don't know how to fix it. But if you know how to fix it, now you're a very valuable asset to them and also the people that are working with their animals. And and that's important for you to learn how to do that. Well, when you learn how to do it, now you're worth you're valuable to those people and and the other people that have that same problem, you know. So going back to your experience and you know where how you grew up and surrounded with uh, quality horseshoers, when did you start making more of that transition of working with show horses? Well, there was a, a, a group of people in uh, the country where we live that that were in the oil business, and those people accumulated enough money that they had casual income, money they didn't have to put back into their business. So the people that had that kind of money, they began to be the owners of show horses. And you see the same thing in the dog business. A lot of people that show dogs and raise dogs and sell them, well, if you had enough money to do that, well, you were popular, and, and a lot of people would come to you and want to buy a horse off you that could run. And and a lot of those race horses make a lot of money. But a lot of them don't make money, but they like to be in the, in the race. They like to be in that competition. But anyway, they're just, maybe they're just not quite good enough or whatever. Anyhow, they're... You, you become a valuable asset if you can take a horse that's just not quite getting there and you can figure out how to shoe him where he can outrun somebody. Now you're worth money. Now you're worth something. And the people that have the good horses, they got good horses, but that don't mean they're all fast enough and sound enough to participate. But if they got one that needs a little help and you know how to help him, now you're in business. Now you're a valuable asset to those people. And when they learn that, they, they'll be back. And they'll tell everybody, hey, you got that, oh, oh, you got your horse is lame. You need to go call Doyle and get him to come over here and fix him. Okay, what's his number? And here you go. Word of mouth will, will, drive your business for you but it's, it's very important to be able to solve those problems when they call you and uh, that's that's quite an asset if you can do that was it uh, sort of a situation with to work with those types of clients where you want to get those mistakes out you want to develop your reputation beforehand because I have to imagine the other side of that is you know as much as your reputation carries you word of mouth if you have a couple yep. of bad experience with horses it can go the other way for you absolutely you're exactly right and and that will i mean that has hurt many a farrier down through the years 
they get a bad reputation and that's that's just as bad as a good reputation is, you know. And it moves just it maybe even moves faster than a good reputation does. That they'll tell everybody, Well, don't call that dude because he'll cripple your horse for you or here he can't fix it or he don't know or whatever, you know. But whatever it is, it's not good. It's always good if you can figure out what the problem is and if you can and take care of it. But my goodness, it'll make you pull your hair out at some time. Regardless of what you do, you can't win, you know? <laughs> right, right. So tell us about the world's fastest horse. Well, that was uh, the horse I was referring to. It was a horse called Dash for Cash. Dash for Cash was raised over here at Frisco, Texas. A guy named B.F. Phillips raised him, and he owned him. And uh, my father and I worked for B.F. Phillips that owned a horse for 35 years. And uh, and within that length of time, he went through a lot of horses. And I'm talking about some good horses, too, some of the best that ever lived. And... Uh, at one time, he had a horse called Streaking Six, who was one of the best sires in the quarter horse business. And he had Dash for Cash and Streaking Six and a horse called Wendy Ryan. I mean, just some of the best horses that ever lived and and probably had about 600 head of mares. And that's job security right there. When you drive by there and you see all those babies out there on the side of the mare, <laughs> that's job security right there, buddy. You got something to do now for next two or three years. But anyway, that was what we were, we were fortunate enough to be able to work for that man. And, and he had a lot of really good horses. And if you were working for that quality of individual, then people that other horses that competed against them, they would call you when they wanted something done. And they, they don't care what you charge. They want you to come and do their work. Well, fortunately, that was good for our business. But unfortunately, horseshoeing is very strenuous. And you know it's hard work. You can only do so many. And after a while, you got to just say, hey, I'd like to help you, but I can't. I've got all I can say grace over right here. So they got to get somebody else. Well, then it behooves you to train somebody. And it was hard to try to keep somebody working for you because people that wanted you to do their horses and they couldn't get you, then they'd hire the man that's working for you without money. <laughs> and if they if they offered him enough money, hey, he's going to have to go after a while, you know. He, he can't just keep turning that down. But anyway, that's what you get into. You understand how that works. And, and it's not just in the horseshoe, and it's in mechanic work or fast cars, whatever. It's all the same. I know you've had your fair share of uh, apprentices and people you've worked with for the years, and, and a lot of them are still working uh, up yep. there in North Texas and South Oklahoma, and I'm sure everywhere else. Um, yep. You know, something you talked to me about a long time ago is is that, that difficulty of keeping good help because sometimes the helper can have, I guess, maybe an illusion that they are, are ready to go out. They they get that client, and uh, yeah. you know that yeah. that can put you in a bad spot if they're not not prepared because it's kind of your reputation carried out there. 
it's a reflection right back on you, you know. And but it, it's uh, and that is difficult because it happens so many times. He, uh, a person that is a, an apprentice, well, he he watches you take these horses and 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 get them sound and get them on the track and and maybe they run really good and win two or three stakes races and make five hundred thousand and that word gets around real quick and then they want this guy to come on and well I've got some horses I need you to shoe and so he gets him a good business started and, and he gets all the work he can do and after a while he trains somebody else and they're just not quite as good as he is but they're pretty good and after a while they the quality runs out they they get to they get to trying to do too many and they can't give the proper time and effort to the problem horses and and that's the one that needs your time that you've got to spend the time with the horses that need the quality time and when you have to run through them and you have to hurry through this job so you can get to another job over here and you got people over here that are screaming and hollering and yelling and well what do you do you just do the best you can and you run through some and and you don't do as good a job as you used to and first thing you know you're out of business and that ain't good but that's exactly what happened it doesn't have to be shooting horses. It can be painting houses or whatever. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. They get, get to where they don't spend the time that it takes to get the job done. Well, how much time does it take? It takes the time that it takes. That's what you got to do. And, and that's easy to say. Sometimes it's hard to do. Yeah, I, th- I think there's the difficulty of the time it takes and and especially when you're out there by by yourself uh dedicating yep. that time per horse but realizing yep. you know until you get to that point where you're established and you can charge uh the wage that you deserve you know a lot of times yep. i think the the younger fairies are struggling uh to get to that yep. point and uh it becomes a volume game yep exactly yeah you try to get all you can and and you make the money and then if you run into a problem and you got to go get some help and straighten it out and here we go again mm-hmm. but it's a, it's it, 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 that, that has not changed over the years it's always been that way yeah so you uh you know you mentioned dash for cash and you've worked with yeah. some of the the top quarter horses through different disciplines. Uh, what yep. do you What do you think about the state of quarter horses in America today? Well, the, the quarter horses are better than they've ever been. Now, uh, as a rule, uh, as a whole, the, the, the quarter the quarter horses the breeding is really great. They've, they've developed some specialized animals that. In the cutting industry, they've got some horses that are fantastic. In in the racing, they've got some horses that are fantastic, and and, and it's gotten better and better over the years. Now, the prices of these horses has gotten out of hand, and by golly, 
there was a time you didn't have to be a millionaire to own a really nice horse, but now you almost have to be a very rich person to 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 handle the right kind of horses, you know. And uh, the brood mares are so are so much now they've they've done it to themselves. They've got the horses where they're worth so much money. It's very difficult to get your hands on the real good ones, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you remedy that situation because you work for years to get those horses to where they're that popular. And now that they're that popular, it's like trying to earn to own a Mercedes Benz. There's a reason that uh, Mercedes costs that much money. And uh, it's because they're a good, dependable automobile, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, now if, if you want to buy one, then you're going to have to come up with that money or see if you can find one that's that good. <laughs> 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 with another name on it, you know? Right. Yeah. Doyle, what's it like, or give me some advice for working with racing quarter horses? There, there again, it's, it goes right back to your ability to recognize problems. The horse, horses that have problems, and all of them do have problems, it's your ability to recognize that problem before it gets out of hand. In other words, before a horse gets so lame he can't go, if you can recognize your ability to recognize that problem and recognize the the confirmation of this certain horse that we're talking about, whatever it is, that he's got a problem with his confirmation, and you know that if you do X number of hours of work with that horse, he's going to start to get sore. So if you know that, then you get in there and get started on this horse and remedy that situation. Fix him so he can go even after you work him for eight or ten races, you still got a horse you can carry on with. Now, this is where you start making money because they they realize how important you are to their business. And if you can get this horse on a regular schedule and keep him on a regular schedule, then you can remedy his confirmation problem whatever it is and and that's how you get these horses to the big races is being able to control their movement and you don't allow them to get real sore or whatever whatever their confirmation problem is if you know what it is and you recognize it you can show him where he doesn't have that problem and now he can go on and run and do his job and get conditioned and get to be valuable in his line of work, whatever it is. Now you, now the horse is happy, you're happy, the owner's happy, and we got a job. We're, we're all in business now. But that's what you got to learn is to how to determine and how to recognize what the confirmation problems are with these horses. And some of them, it's very it's inherent it's a heredity that it's something that's been passed down from grandmama to grandson and and now you're now you got to you know the condition because you've seen it for years 
And once you see it again, it comes right back to you. You know exactly what to do. Boom, here you go. And it's a great feeling to be able to take one of those horses that has, a, let's say, a low heel problem. And, and when he's running, he bruises his heel because he's just naturally got a low heel. But if you know how to remedy that, and you know how to remedy that, then you can fix that horse where he can run just like he didn't have his power. And now he doesn't have that problem, and now he's worth some money. And if he can make money, now you got a job. Mm-hmm. But if you if he can't make no money, you're not going to have a job, you know. I think breeding is is a good topic, especially yeah. with uh, you know going back to the uh, the quarter horse used as a halter horse. Uh, is yep. is that that's one in particular where you're going to have those conformational challenges, and and you've mentioned how you know advanced we are with breeding uh, you know are our feet really getting the attention they should with that well that is a really good question because it's always been a an area that you can let them slide on well i know she don't have a really good foot but boy she's such a nice above her feet she's really a really nice mare but she just doesn't have very good feet well that you need to have a different attitude there because without those feet, it doesn't matter what it's got above those feet because after a while, it's going to come back and bite you in the low ditty and you're not going to like it when it does, but the heavier they get and the harder they have to work, the more stress they put on those feet and them feet will come apart like a dollar watch. And when they do, it's right when you need them the worst. That's when they're going to come apart. When he gets to the, the big race for a million bucks, and now you need this horse to be 100% on every foot and be hitting on every cylinder, and now he's run for a little bit, and then he starts to limp a little. And then he'll spit the bits out and lay down, and now you got to go back and get you a different horse. Hold on here a minute. So you got to be sure... When you decide that the horses you want to keep, the ones you want, that they got good enough feet to handle the work you're going to ask them to do. That's where we get into a problem. Because we have people that they love horses and they like horses and they can't afford them. They got the money to buy whatever they want. Except they don't have the knowledge to pick out the ones that have good feet and legs. They can't see that. Mm -hmm. They can see the color and they see how pretty they are and yada, 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 what their grandfather did and all along by the lineage form. But now, by gosh, you got one here you want to buy, but he does not have good wheels. Well, unfortunately, that's the first thing they got to have is that good underpinning they got to have them feet because they got to put them on the ground every day that horse has got to go on those feet and you can't replace them you may not like them but that's what he's born with and that's what he's going to have to stay with so you're going to have to learn how to find somebody that can fix the problems he's got if you can do that we're in business I had a a client right outside of town here, 
that outside of Collinsville. Name was Jim Dunn. Bless his heart, he's not with us anymore. But he had a boy working for him named Ross Roark. Ross is still a good hand, and he's a good showman, good as there is in the world. And uh, anyhow, they they had some good horses, but they kept buying horses and trading them, and and they'd buy a crippled son of a gun, and then they want me to fix it, and some of them I could fix, and then some of them I couldn't. And so I had a damn come apart in the barn one day, and I said, hey, y'all quit buying these damn crippled things <laughs> and bringing them in here, dropping them on me, now you want me to fix them, and then if I can't get him fixed, then you can't sell him. Let's don't buy these things that are crippled if we can keep coming. And bring them in here and you want me to fix them where you can resell them? Well, some of them things I can fix, but some of the stuff that you're bringing in here, I can't fix. Nobody can. The best thing to do is don't buy them with these problems. So anyhow, I had a damn come apart. But anyhow, I told them, I said, look, if you're going to buy a horse that's got a problem, let me go look at him first. And then I, let me tell you, if I can fix him, then we'll fix him and go right on. We'll be in business. But don't bring these crippled suckers in here that can't be fixed and then ask me to fix them because I can't do that. Nobody can. Okay, so they come up with a stud that they want to buy. He's just a baby on his mother, nursing his mother down in Aubrey, Texas. He's a really a nice horse. This is a really a nice horse. Anyhow, they wanted a lot of money for this horse. I don't, I don't know, 100000 or 150000 for this baby. He's nursing his mother. So they said, hey, we got a horse we want to buy. We'd like for you to look at him. Would you go do that, please? I said, you damn right. That's exactly what I want. Let me look at him before you buy him. Let me determine if we can fix them. Okay. So I'm the one who's going to have to fix them anyway. So here we go. We go down there and look at this. We go out in the pasture and look at this mare and coat. The people that own him are there, and we don't say nothing to them. I don't say nothing. They don't either. We go back and get in the car, and they say, okay, what do you think? I said, I can fix him. You get him bought as quick as you can so that I can start on him now. He's just a baby, but I said, I need to start on him now. This will give me a lot of time to work on him. They don't have to show him until he's a yearling. Now, he's just about, I know I'm guessing he's five months old when I see him. So the first time he's got to be shown, he'll be 12 months old. He'll be a yearling. Be in January, February, something like that. And I said, you get him bought and get him to your house and let me go to work on him. Now, when he gets old enough that he don't have to have his mama anymore, you can send her back home. But I want you to bring the mare with him so he don't have to lose no no days of getting that titty and he's going to just keep right on growing. Okay, so that's exactly what they did. They brought they bought the coat, brought him and his mama to their place right here in Collinsville, and I set up a deal with him. I went and worked on this coat every ten days, 
And, I mean, I took his feet from nothing to where they looked gorgeous all the time. His feet looked like great all the time. Well, if you work on one every 10 days, you can maintain a beautiful foot on them. So, come time when him, well, he's a yearling, they take him to the world championship show, he wins world champion as a yearling. So now he's he's won the world championship as a yearling stud. He's qualified to go back to the world championship show next year. If you're world champion this year, you're qualified to go back and show next year. Otherwise, you have to qualify and get points to go back. Well, he qualified. He's world champion, has all the qualifications he needs. So next year, so I get I get to keep him all year at the ranch there, and I get to shoe him. I put shoes on him, and boom, boom, boom. I'm working on him every 30 days. His feet look great. I'm telling you, you couldn't find a better looking foot on nothing this but than this baby had. Next year, he's now he gets to show again at the World Championship show. He's two years old. And he's only been to one show in his life. That was last year at the World Championship show, and he's world champion. He don't have to show. He don't have to do nothing. He's already qualified to go back this year. Now he gets to show again at the World Championship show, and that's the only show he's been to. Here he goes back to the same deal. He's world champion again as a two-year-old. So he wins it as a as a yearling. He wins it as a two-year-old. We have some people come up, they want to buy him. Mandoni said, what do you think? I said, I think you need to sell him just as quick as you can get the money. Because that, that he'll never be worth any more money than he is right now. You've shown him two times in his life. He's got two world championships. How can you do any better than that? You can't. He's been out, he's been to two shows in his life and he won both of them and both of them were world championships. You can't ever do no better than that. Right. And I said, he won't ever be worth no more money than he is right now. They sold him for 800000 Oh. Woo! Two year old stud. <laughs> Holy moly. But that's what you can do if you get all your ducks in a row. You know, I bucked the bridle off and said, you know, don't bring no more of them damn crippled things in here without me looking at them. Pert, well, that's what we did. We got our heads together and they let me tell them what to do. And, and when they brought me the baby, I went to work on him immediately. And every time his feet grew out a little bit, boom, I straightened them right up and here we go. His legs grew straight. His feet grew straight. And when he got back to the world championship, boom, he wins it again. Yeah. You know, I, I think you know, like it's all that package of what you talked about earlier, being able to, to solve a problem, yep. being able to help a horse. And, yep. you know, you were in that fortunate position where you had that reputation where you could uh, uh, not be so delicate in telling the, the owner 
what they needed to do, what they need to avoid buying. And they were smart enough to listen to you and make sure you're there. I, I don't know if that's, that's right. something a lot of other horseshoers get experience. So uh, I think there's there's a couple ways to approach this. Number one, how, how do you tactfully put it that you'd like a little more say in the you know what they're looking for, but also when that owner has that more mature horse where you can't fix anything because it's done growing, you know, yeah. how do you tell them of I'm doing the best I can with with what you've given me? That's it. You're exactly right, and I and you you're exactly right. It, not everybody can be tactful and and hold their dadgum tongue and. And uh, yeah, I had to. I had to eat a little crow once in a while. But you're right. It's, it's you're fortunate if you can, if you've got enough experience and they know you do, and you can tell them how it is, and they'll listen. You're very fortunate. Some people can tell them how it is, but they don't listen. Or they don't think you got that that kind of ability. But yeah, you're right. I was very fortunate that these guys knew me and. And I was well established enough, and they knew it. That if I told them that's the way it is, then that's they knew that I was telling them just like it is. And uh, they all knew Matlock Rose, and they knew you know Joe Turner. I don't know if you know who that is, but mm -hmm. Joe Turner used to live right out right down the road here, and uh, he lived right down on the other side of these people. And he was from Dallas, and and he him and he worked with them. But anyway, there was people there in Dallas years ago that had a lot of money and a lot of horses. And Joe Turner worked for him. He was a bookkeeper, and but he knew me and I knew him, and I and I shot all their horses. And uh, they had some horses that were high dollar. They owned a place called Windy Hill Farm, and it was really a high dollar horse place right down there in the north edge of Dallas. And I'm talking about these folks. They they knew how to get that money together, and and they take a horse, you know, worth maybe fifty thousand, and sell him to one of them rich people in Dallas for three hundred thousand. Well, you know, after a while, that story gets around, and and they do well with their horse, and somebody else gets them money. Here we go again. But anyway, I'm chewing all of them, and and uh, so anyway, when I told them how it was my argument had some teeth in it and they knew that I had a good reputation and I knew what I was talking about by golly it worked and they just you know they do what I told them and it worked out just like I told them it would now if it didn't work out yeah I'm sure we'd have to back up and regroup and do something different but we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. It worked. It worked just like I told them it would. But they <laughs> let me help. You know, they let me help pick the horse out. And then when they bring him here to the ranch, that son of a gun does great. And he goes to the World Show twice and wins both of them. Hey, if, if I told them to fly straight up, they'd be trying to get something that go straight up. You know. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing, like a Joe Turner who, you know, uh, AQHA Hall of Famer, you yep. know, they, they're smart enough to delegate to the horseshoer to, to trust your experience. Yep. And that that's something you're, that seems to be missing a lot. Yep. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Joe knew my dad and 
way back there and you know he knew what my lineage was and he knew where I learned what I knew and and uh, Joe Turner he learned a lot in his lifetime from my dad because uh, he trusted him with his livestock and he had some horses that worth a lot of money and by Jack's you know it worked but if it hadn't worked yeah I'm sure he wouldn't listen to my dad or me or nobody else that that he didn't have the confidence in you know but anyway that's yeah. uh you, you have to earn that but that's okay i'm i'm glad that people respected our opinion there was a reason they respected it but hey when you know like he sent this coat to two world championship shows and he wins both of them they enough said right there let's yeah. go again let's find it let's find us another one <laughs> <laughs> You know, at, one of the old pictures I have of you, uh, and it's in that article, is you on a cutting horse. And, uh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. You know, that's another another discipline where you worked with a lot of good horses. Uh, yep. You know, like a question I asked earlier, what, let's talk about cutting horses and what, what a farrier okay. who wants to work with these types of horses needs to know. Okay, that's a good question because a, the, the cutting horse is a, a different individual all his own now at one time not at one time but for years they would show them at halter and they'd do this and they'd rope on them and they'd do a lot of things with a cutting horse but now they've got these horses to where they're so dadgum specialized that they don't do that anymore they used to show you, for instance a halter horse when they first started out showing these stallions at halter, I mean at at halter, yeah, they they had to uh, they they had to uh, ride them first and let the judge observe them under saddle. Then they'd bring them back, take the saddle off, and judge them at halter. Now. That's how we got our quarter horses to where they are today. They were good, solid horses. They had some sense. They, you could step on one and ride him and bring him back here, take a saddle off, and show him at halter. See, see how pretty he is now. Well, that's how we got here. That's, that's the way they started that because that was some of the qualifications of a halter horse 40% of your halter class was judged on confirmation. I mean, riding ability, excuse me. Okay. The, uh, the movement and, and, uh, and the ability of this horse to carry weight and go through a class, walk, trot, and canter. And if he could do that, then you bring him back and show him at halter. So it showed that diversity, the horse is diversified enough that he, was, he carried himself well, he looked good under saddle, and it was a pleasure to ride. Well, that was good. All those things were great. And that put the quarter horse right where he needed to be. And it, and it showed that he had the ability to should go out there and look pretty, carry weight, do the job, and come back and take his saddle off, and now he's really pretty to look at. That was good. And it used to be judged on 40% on confirmation and 60% on way of going that's what they called when you're riding them 
way of going. That's what it was. That's what it said in the in the rule book. Way of going. Some horses don't move worth a flip. I mean, they look like a water buffalo when you're riding them. You know, that ain't good. And you wouldn't want to breed your mare to a stud that moved like that. But one that just floats across the ground, you betcha. That's the kind you want to breed your mare to. And the judge can see that. But that's how we got here. That's how we got where we are. Is We started out with a breed of horses that were a pleasure to be around. You could saddle them up and ride them, bring them back, take the saddle off and show them the halter. And now you got something to look at. Well, hey, that's a kind of... That's the kind of horse you want to raise right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was good for it was good for the breeder. It was good for the good for everybody, you know. And that's how it started out years ago. Now they don't do that anymore. You don't have to ride them. Most of them you couldn't ride them if you wanted to, because they're not broke and they they buck your ass off before you cut halfway around the pen. But we got good horses out there that that wouldn't do that too but those are the ones that made the breed what it is today horses that could carry the weight and move perfectly and then go out there and look good at halter yeah Yeah. that's the kind we wanted to raise you know but we wanted to raise those kind good minded good movers good conformation good feet good legs a lot of muscle that was what you were looking for. Well, that's what we want to raise right there. And if you bred your mare to a horse that looked like that, at 90% of the time, you'd get one, a baby that looked something like that too. You know, and now that we're we're in this age of specialization, you don't have, well, I mean, you still have the all around horse, but yep. you know, now that, you know, they're, they're looking for a specific type and they're worried about bloodlines of, if this is going to be a cutting horse or if this is going to be a race horse, whatever the case may be for yep. that quarter horse. Yep. Uh, how did things change for you with, with trying to manage those types of clients that, that you know, the, when the things went more to specializing and using a horse specific for one dis- discipline? Now, that's a good question. And so you have to determine where your expertise is. Do you want to do you want to shoe race horses or do you want to shoe cutting horses? Or do you want to shoe halter horses? You need to determine the kind of horse that you think that you can do the best and make the most money working on that type of horse. And that's what determines what I work on is the paycheck. I want to know how much because I knew back then, and I still do, what they pay to get a, a halter horse done, what they pay to get a race horse done, what they pay to get a cutting horse done, and all those those horses, it, it cost, it's a different price to shoe every one of them because they call for different specifications and different types of shoes. And so you, it costs you more to do them or it costs you less to do them you make more money if it costs you less so you have to determine what where your expertise is going to be and and then and then what you're the best what 
with it what you're the best at because that's what's going to determine how many clients what your clientele looks like if you're really good at you and the harder horses then they're going to call you to come and do their harder horse they don't care what you charge what they want to know is can you fix this problem that's what's important to them well yeah I can and I've specialized in fixing them problems for many years they know that that's the reason your phone rings if you can't do that your phone won't ring because they'll call somebody else mm-hmm. but that's the that's the deal right there if, if you're proficient at fixing them problems they'll call you to fix it because they got them they'll, they'll have them they'll, the people that own those horses that don't, that don't mean they know how to buy a good straight legged horse they just got enough money to afford one that don't put them that don't make them an authority on it it just means they got one and they need him done now and it may and it may be up to you to tell them what the problems are that their horse has got now that they got him they might need to know hey i shouldn't have bought this son of a gun because he got some he got some problems i don't want to deal with you know yeah. anyway that's part of it when you get to be a horseshoer that's part of your job is to try to help these people try to tell them hey you you got you got some problems here you need to uh, address and you might want to think about getting rid of this horse and getting you one that don't have these problems yeah. if you if you if you can do that without making them mad you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know i i don't know you know i i've been to a lot of places and you look at dallas fort worth area where you are that whole metroplex yep. uh it'd be hard to argue that there's a uh, another area with a higher concentration of quality horseshoers and you know yep. to be honest number of horseshoers of of maybe poor poor skill set, poor knowledge. Everybody's got to start somewhere. How did you approach business to not undercut a farrier for, you know, it could be for a quality horse or really any level of horse where you're starting off and keeping those good relations with the other horseshoers in your area? Yep, that's a good question too. And, and, and I find the best way to do that is to do the best you can with the job you got in hand and you don't run nobody else down you uh, you tell the truth as much as you can and then i mean because sometimes uh, the, they say the truth hurts well sometimes if you tell the truth about a guy's work well it might be a bad reflection on him so the best thing you can do is is not make an enemy out of him or the people that own that horse, but you got to try to keep the people happy. So you got a job. Now, if you want that job, that's what you got to do. If you don't want that job, then you don't care what he thinks. But that's not a good attitude to have because you eventually might need to call on somebody for something. And and if you go through the business and you're making these people upset at you all the time, it ain't going to work good. So yeah, the best thing to do is try to do the best job you can with the animal you got to work on and and try not to run another guy's work down. Don't 
say, say well, this guy don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. But taking the time, though, if you do have an issue with somebody's work or you want to help them out, you know, yep. you, you, like you said, you don't want to do that in front of the client. Uh, yep. You know, how, how do you approach or how did you approach a fellow farrier to, to maybe try to help them out or point out that, that maybe their work was in the long run going to hurt them? The best thing I have found is to ask questions. Now, what I mean by that is, if you can get this, the other shooter one-on-one and ask him questions like, how, how long have you been shoeing? And uh, what kind of shoes do you like? What kind of horses do you like to shoe? Uh, you, you, you can ask these questions without making him feel badgered or feel like you're running him down. You just ask him these questions and let him tell you. You know, now that seems to work the best for me because if if I try to tell one of these guys or give them advice about shoeing, I always get overboard, and I and it's just because of my demeanor, I guess, because I'd like to teach them something, but I I always get a over, and then I get just talking too loud, or I, and I don't make no friends doing that. So the best thing for me to do is just ask questions and let them tell me how long they've been doing this and what kind of horses they like to shoe, what kind of shoes do they use, what kind of nails. You just you just go through a. I've got a a line of questions that I use, and I can find out how much he knows and how long he's been at it and uh, what his priorities are pretty quick. And then I find out right quick if I want to keep this conversation going or if I want to get through with this conversation and this guy mm-hmm. quick and get out of here. It don't take me long. Yeah. <laughs> and I do it, and I'll do it without making him mad, without making him upset, making him feel like, like he's worth $2. Don't do that. Because you, you're not going to gain anything. You're not going to make a friend by doing that, and you don't gain anything. So yeah. if if you can if you can get him to asking you questions, now you can you can start to do something with him because eventually he's going to ask you about going with you or something like, you know some kind of question like that that you can use in a productive manner. And what he needs is training. What he needs is to get with you and learn how to do things the right way. That's very important. If you can teach one of these guys to do the job, the more correct, it's better for him, the horses, because eventually you're going to have to get, you're going to have to do something behind a guy like that. Mm-hmm. And, and if you teach him a little something about how to do it, it'll be a lot better the next time you see him. Because his work is going to be reflective of his ability and his knowledge. If he knows how to do it, it'll show up in his work. Right. And if he doesn't know how to do it, it'll also show up in his work. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's that's an important point. You, you know, you you you've honed a good way of finding out whether somebody is teachable. You know, by by yeah. asking questions and you know is yeah. going to be receptive to to wanting your help and not. You know, there's only so many hours in the day to place that into somebody who doesn't want to improve. Bless your heart. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's got to be in them. They got to want to know more about it. And just because you want them to know better, that don't mean they're going to follow up with that. It's, it's Sometimes it's a delicate touch to get around a guy like that and then get by him without pissing him off. Because you, you, you know the the more shallow thinkers they are, the easier it is to make them mad. And the more elementary their education, the harder and longer it is going to take them to learn how to do it right. Mm-hmm. But don't do as I do. Do as I say. Do as I do. Right. Don't listen to me. I don't know nothing about it. But so, as a, a final question. You know, you established your business. You're very successful as a horseshoer. And, and something you said earlier about, you know, even in the any given day, it's a taxing job. And that tax is going to build up over yep. the years. Doyle, what advice do you have for longevity in this industry? You know, I, uh, I learned from my dad to try to keep yourself in, in a decent shape. Hey. And, and I thought for years it was very uncouth of my dad because he did not like to be around people that were heavy set, people that were fat. And but I learned that that just his way of describing people that were overweight. He he uh, he didn't really mind them being overweight. But it was it was very important to him that he did not get overweight. He was he was made a lot like you. He was about your height, and and uh, I, I don't guess you got a ounce of fat on you, do you? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you don't remember that, Doyle. Uh, I, I don't think your dad would have disliked me, but I probably got to drop a few pounds. Well, that's all right. But you understand and. And you know uh, that was something that that he admired. He he did not like to see a guy packing too much weight around, you know. And it and and it de- definitely does affect the way you get around and the way you're able to work and what you're able to do. But when you're a horseshoer, when you're a farrier, you don't want to be packing no weight that you can't use because it's just a detriment. It just holds you back, keeps you from bending over, and keeps you from doing things that you could do better if you weren't heavy. But now that was part of his deal. Well, bless his heart, he uh, he never told me one time that I was overweight, and I, and I don't think I was, but that was something that I was always aware of. And so you asked me a question that I, that, and I'm going a long way around here about answering it, but I think it's very important not to gain weight, not to gain too much weight, not have to carry that weight around, and don't go into your retirement years with that weight around your belly, and you, you just get to where you got too damn much weight to get around. You got to carry it. 
the more weight you carry in, the harder it is on your legs, your knees, your ankles, everything. And you get down under a horse and he's laying on you and, and that son of a gun can make you miserable if you're not in good shape. If you're in good shape, it won't make you miserable. And, and I, and I don't care how much horseshoeing you do, you're never going to get to where it don't get you tired because it, it's a tiring profession. You've got to keep yourself in good shape if you're going to do it, you know? And, and so that was something that he always worked on me. Now, and he always worked on my brother, but my brother weighed about 280 pounds. He was always overweight. Well, <laughs> that's just the way he was. And it didn't bother him because he, he had a, his doctor that before he died it told him, you need to lose some weight and you need to quit eating that fried chicken and that chicken fried steak and gravy. And I, and he told him, my brother told him, said, Ella, my mother was the best cook in the world and she cooked fried chicken and fried pork chops and fried steak and she made biscuits and gravy every day. And he said, that's what I was raised on. I love that. I love eating that stuff. And his doctor said, well, it's going to cause you to cut your life short, too, you know, because you got diabetes. And you don't need to be eating those fried foods. Well, he said, well, that may kill me, but he said, if I die, if it does, I'll go out with a smile on my face. Because <laughs> that's, that's what I like to eat. <laughs> So I thought, well, that's a that's a good example for me not to follow. Do not follow that example. And I didn't. But now I, the older I get, I start getting a little bit of roll around my belt here that I wish I didn't have. But I, I've tried to keep that down and keep it back. But since I retired, I, I put on a little around my waist that I didn't have before when I was working. But that happens, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but anyhow, Doyle, what advice do you have for preparing for retirement for when the day comes that you can no longer shoe horses? To answer your question the best I can, I, I tried not to spend money on things that were not important and I, I always kept my eyes on the, the prize trying to get myself a, a house and some land and and uh, to try to develop things that would make me money when I retired uh, I've got some houses here that we built and now we rent them out and and that's a, quite an asset when you get up in the morning and you know you're going to have some money coming. You've got some money coming in that you don't have to get out there and work for. Now, when you got to get out there and work every day so you can pay your bills and you're 78 years old like I am, that don't look too good. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty uphill battle right there. But when you know you got a way to make money and you don't have to work and you got some rent houses and you know that the first of the month that rent's gonna be coming right in here and you make three or four thousand dollars and you don't have to work 
Now, my wife, is she hasn't retired yet, but she's going to. And when she does, she's going to be making four or 5000 a month added to what I'm making. You know, we'll have nine or 10000 a month coming in on a regular basis. Well, that's not hard to take. I mean, that's that take a little of pressure off of you, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's what you got to keep in your mind is keep that foremost in your mind. If you're going to buy something, make sure it's something that will help you down the road. Otherwise, don't buy it. Don't spend that money if you don't have to. And, and I mean, that's what I've always tried to do and make sure that it was something that I knew I could get some return on down the, down the road, you know? Sure. So I think back to that young man who had been shooing for a while, working under his dad and uncle and uh, sitting there and, and that guy comes to the house with the horse and it's time to change out of that baseball outfit. You know, <laughs> here, here we are years later, you look back and you've been shooing horses for, for more than 60 years. And you know what, what are you most proud of over your career? Uh, well, that, that's a good question. And, and I'm proud of my reputation with the horse people. Because, uh, I mean, I go right now, people I've known 60 years, and and it's a pleasant day when I get to be around them and they get to be around me, and we talk about things that we used to do years ago. And and uh, you, the people you meet and, and the situations that, you go through, uh, God dang, I, I'm pretty fortunate to be able to look back over it and say, well, it was a good life and it's been good to me. Yeah, you had to put out a lot of work. You had to do hard work and lots of it. But that's okay. Because regardless of what you do in this old world, you're going to have to work unless you're rich to start with. But it was, it's, been a, it's been a good ride. <laughs> it's been really good. <laughs> I'd like to thank Doyle for taking the time to chat with us. And I'd also like to thank GE Forge and Tool for sponsoring this episode. For our next podcast, we'll speak with Hall of Famer Walt Taylor, who is also the founder of the American Farriers Association. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>